Uh, hey everybody, welcome to the ARE Live. Uh, we are uh, getting ready to talk about contracts. Uh, my name is Mike Newman. Many of you probably know me from the Black Spectacles uh, video lectures. Uh, I'm taking over today for Mark Tier, uh, who is the one who's usually playing this role uh, of sort of organizing this um, because Mark is out. Um, and today we're going to be talking about uh, pretty much the, the key things to understand for uh, the contracts, the A101, the A201, the B101, uh, so that when you're taking the uh, ARE, taking the exam, you have a, a clear understanding of kind of what's going on. And we're going to be focusing mostly on the changes that have happened between the older version, the 2007 version, and the new version, which is the 2017 version. Before we get started, though, um, if you'd like to attend our next ARE live broadcast, where we'll have a discussion about the steps it takes to get licensed, you can visit blackspectacles.com podcast to register for that. Uh, we'll be having two licensing advisors showing you kind of what the general licensure requirements are, and then we'll break down all the different uh, state licensing issues, because one of the interesting things about licensure is that it's actually done by state. So you have a bit of a sort of national conversation and then a bit of an individual state conversation happening at the next uh, podcast. Uh, during the broadcast, you'll have a chance to ask all the questions you want uh, to the group. Slight cough, I hope, uh, hope it won't be a problem. Uh, as you probably know, in addition to our video lectures, we now have online practice exams, online flashcards, and a group coaching program, which is the, the big new thing. Our February cohort for the coaching uh, has closed, but if you're interested in participating in the next group coaching program, visit blackspectacles.com slash group coaching, where, uh, where you can add your name to the wait list for the next program, which is going to be launching in June. Also, uh, it'd be good to let you know, everybody always talks about, oh, everything's so expensive and how do we get things done and take the exams and do all that. Uh, one of the things you might want to be considering is if you can get a Black Spectacles membership for your firm. Uh, so you can uh, contact Black Spectacles and talk to them about firm licenses for any size firm. Uh, they work all the way from very small firms up to great big firms. So. Uh, lots of different possibilities and it makes a lot of sense for a lot of you out there. So uh, think about that. Uh, you can have multiple user access, you have uh, group uh, administration on it, you can get uh, reporting inf uh, information, all sorts of good stuff uh, that can, can come from the Black Spectacles uh, group uh, uh, programs there, the firm license programs. Uh, and today we have a special discount uh, on Black Spectacles individual memberships to share, and we'll provide that coupon at the end of the show. But let's, uh, let's get to it. So today I'm joined uh, by attorney Mike Hanahan from Schiff Harden. Uh, so yes, it's going to be Mike and Mike. Uh, sorry about the confusion, but it's just how it's going to be. Uh, so Mike Hanahan and Mike Newman. Uh, and we're going to be, like I said, mostly talking about the differences between the 2007 and 2017 AIA contracts, the B101, the A101, and the A201. Uh, but in that process of talking about those differences, uh, hopefully quite a bit of sort of the general nature of what's understood in the contracts, what the point of those contracts uh, will come through in, in, uh, in the discussion. 
Uh, and feel free to send us a question uh, if you uh, can. And this is a pretty dense uh, webinar, so this is we're going to be uh, going into some some depth. Uh, so it's going to be pretty tight, but we will hope that we can get to at least a at least a few questions as they uh, as they come through. Uh, but let's uh, let's jump right into this uh, conversation. So uh, welcome, Mike. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate the, the opportunity to be here. And, and as to the, the Mike and Mike, I figure Golick and Greeny did it for 15 years. We could do it for about an hour. <laughs> right, we can handle so it. I, we'll be good. So. Uh, so one of the things that's just to sort of start us off that uh, I think is sort of interesting, and, and some of the people out there may have uh, heard me say this before, uh, I was expecting a much bigger change with the 2017 contracts because so much had happened technologically and sort of this the way that the industry was shifting around between when 2007s were done into now, what with all of the BIM and everything uh, so much stronger. Uh, maybe if you have any sort of overarching thoughts about that. Well, I, I think you're right. I think as, as if you look at it, and on, certainly on the first level, that the, the documents, I, I won't say aren't dramatically changed. B101, change probably less than the A201. The A201 has a few more substantive changes throughout. Um, and like I said, that's on a, on a su surface level when you just read the document. And, and probably the biggest reason is if you think about what this document, especially the B101 is used, it's using at least 70 to 80% of all the owner architect agreements are using these AIA documents. And so while- So that's a lot of projects, yeah, right? It's, yeah, yeah. The, the, the major contract in the construction industry. So you're gonna have an owner that maybe in a large project can afford the technological stuff and the sustainability and stuff, but but most of our construction is smaller. Right. So for every project from uh, a, an airport uh, doing you know big big things down to somebody is putting a, a bedroom addition on their house, and there's a, a version maybe not the B101 exactly, but there's a version in there. It's, it's a really wide range, so it's not all BIM projects, it's exactly. not all sustainable projects, that yeah. kind of thing. And, and, and so the committee, when they meet, and the committee's made up of representatives from all trades, the owner, architect, contractor, subcontractors, they all have a voice. They need to get that information in, but they all recognize that a lot of their dollars are generated by small projects. There's many more small projects than there are big ones. And the AIA recognized, let's keep it some of the basics in here but as I said, there is a, and we'll get into that a little bit today, there are some places where when you do go the next level, when you start looking about sustainability and BIM, they have actually adopted the, the changes in the industry. And we'll talk about it when we get to as those we, slides. As we go along. So uh, just a quick reminder for everybody that uh, the, the terminology here, we're going to just use the quick acronym of B101 uh, in this case, which is the Owner Architect Agreement. So uh, the Bs are all the, uh, documents that are between owners and architects. The A's, uh, the A101, et cetera, are the uh, documents between the owner and the contractors, the general contractors. Uh, and then the A201 is sort of the, the one in between that is kind of the umbrella document that kind of ties everything together. So when you hear us say B101, that's we're talking about the owner architect. When we talk about the A101, we're talking about the owner contractor. And when we're talking about the A201, it's the sort of uh, one that everybody touches. And right. When you sign any of those contracts, you're essentially signing on to the A201. Yeah, and the A201, another way people call it the general conditions, I, I look at it, if, if you want to think about it in, in the most basic terms, 
The A201 is like if you're going to play Monopoly or some board game, it's the rules to the game. And right. everybody has to play by the same board rules, and that's what the A201 operates So for. it's all the definitions and Correct. things like that. Right. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to jump in to the B101 to start with, uh, and we're going to run through some very specific issues. And let's talk for a quick second about the graphics that we're showing here. So you can see there's a, a actual verbiage from the contract, but it has a bunch of crossed off stuff. Uh, What's going on with the cross-off and with the blue? Yeah, it, this is not that I, I submitted my Redline version and it's a draft. What, what <laughs> I did was I took the, um, the 2007 version and I compared it to the 2017. So what you're looking at here, um, other than the caption where it says that the title or the name of the slide itself, in the text itself, if the language is in blue, that is new text to the agreement. If the language has, been has a strike through, that was in the 07 and has been eliminated from the new version. And then anything that's just straight black text, and um, that was, it's consistent in it's both in the both. 07 and the 17. So you can see what's new, and you can see what they felt was important to get rid of here. And uh, another just sort of quick background thing, uh, it may be sound a little strange, we keep talking about 07 and 17. Uh, for whatever reason, I don't know why they chose the sevens, but uh, the AIA documents uh, get renewed uh, and sort of rewritten to some extent every 10 years on the seven. Yeah, there, there's uh, a suite of documents. There's a, about 30 documents that go every, every 10 years on the sevens. Um, the first one, I believe that they started was 57, then it went 67. Why they started doing that, th these, these AIA forms have been around since the early 20s or teens, I'm not sure which, so they've been around for many, many years. But at some point in time, they recognized we need to update them. They decided on 10 years, and, and there's, there's two reasons. One, um, it's a lot of work to update these and get everybody on board. But, but more importantly, at least as far as my concern and, and for the people that are out there practicing, it takes about two or three years for the contracts to burn in to be accepted by the community. And then it takes X number of years for those projects to be built, and then for problems to happen and then the lawyers would step in, like me, to figure out what's wrong with the contract. And so we get about 10 years in, and they say, okay, here's the things that we've figured out is wrong with the right. last version. So we can fix them. And, right. right. Or the industry has changed, and we'll talk about some of those things. So it's not just because something's wrong with the document. Sometimes you're recognizing changes in the industry. Sure. Technological, just industry changes in terms of the economics of things, uh, how people pro deliver projects, uh, changes over time all sorts of things like that. So it, it sounds a little goofy when you say the sevens and the seventeens, yeah. but there's actually a reasonable logic to it. Uh, and uh, there are other changes that happen at other points along the way. They'll do minor changes here and there for some documents, but the big ones are on the, uh, on the sevens. Correct. All right, so let's jump right in here. Uh, we have this first one, the elimination of exhibit for initial information. And we were talking about this a little bit before we started. Uh, essentially, this comes about because in the sevens and the ones before it, nobody was really using it correctly. Right. So this was an AIA recognizing a mechanical problem how the contract was structured. Before, you had to fill out Exhibit A, the initial information, and that was a separate document, and you put in all these details, which included, you know, the parties and the budget and, and the construction milestone dates, all the kind of gut uh, pieces that you would have for the contract. Um, but since nobody filled it out, the AA recognized, hey, let's, let's roll it into actually the document itself so we don't have a problem later on when people are saying, I didn't know what this budget is, I didn't know the schedule, so it's been rolled in here. So what we have just on the slide here is the introductory paragraph. And then in the actual uh, 
1.1, there's a whole number of subsections that will cover all the information that was in the Exhibit A. Um, so now it's actually all in one place. So essentially, it was uh, the idea was that you'd put all this information into a, an, an end exhibit, like a, an addenda essentially Correct. to the contract. And because it was a separate thing, it would get lost or nobody would do it or whatever. And now they've just sort of folded it all directly into the yeah. contract itself. And I, and I can say, even on my end, sometimes as, as the lawyer working, I'll, I'll get the B101 out and we'll talk with the client and say, we'll get the, a, the Exhibit A filled out. And then even when I'm working with them, we never fill it out. So it's right. not just that the people don't do it. Sometimes even the lawyers don't do it. So this is much better. So we can blame the lawyers for this. Is what you're yeah, saying. we can yeah. do that. That's okay. not a problem. All right. I'm, 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 I'm okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, let's, uh, let's jump to the next one. Uh, so this is kind of the first really substantial, substantial change uh, in the 17 that we were starting to talk about, the BIM and the sustainable uh, aspect of these things. Correct. So in the, in the 97s and the 07s, uh, the AA was starting to recognize sustainable design, green design was important, and they threw a couple of buzzwords here and there in that but it's become a much more uh, significant part of the construction industry and society and everything else. So what they did is they created this E204 exhibit, which they had one, but they've now, they've now amped it up significantly. And what they've said is, we are going to have this specific sustainable project exhibit, and the parties can elect to use that. Now they don't have to. They don't have to have, a, you, not every project has to be green, but if the parties decide they want to do that, and it talks about, right, we underline there, it says, if it is incorporated, then later on they shall incorporate the completed exhibit. So, and that word shall is an interesting one, right? It's a very powerful word. Yeah, in, the, in legal terms, you have to do it. This isn't a may, this isn't okay, I think about it. So when the parties start to talk in the beginning of a project, if the owner's interested in doing lead or green globes or, or whatever type of sustainability model they wanna follow, if they decide they're in and the parties get in there, once you're in, you're in, and you have to fill out the form. Now, you can have different levels of how intense it is, but if you're in, you're in, and it becomes part of the overall contracting project. So this is an interesting one because you could totally imagine a question on the ARE that says something like, uh, there's a project and uh, the parties involved are deciding this or that. Uh, do they have to do X, Y, or Z that's about sustainability? And the answer would be only if they've elected in this B101 moment here that yes, we are in fact filling out the E204 and therefore the architect has certain responsibilities about sustainability, the owner has certain Correct. responsibilities about sustainability, and even the contractor has certain responsibilities about the sustainability. Like once, once you fill this out, then everybody's on board and the project is going that direction yes. and is contractually, legally going that direction. If you don't, check this box and fill this out, then it's just a regular project and none of those res specific responsibilities hold true. Correct, yeah. and, and I, there's a couple things for that. It, it, it's important that you mention that the contractor is, has a role in this and that we are in the beginning, in the design phase when you're talking about it, in for a penny, in for a pound, so everybody has an obligation and the E204 is referenced in this document and it's referenced in the contractor documents and it has a section in portions where every owner, contractor, and architect have their obligations, responsibilities. Um, it's, it's also interesting though, the, one of the legal reasons why this came about real briefly is people would think they're getting lead silver, lead gold, 
and they wouldn't get it. And they didn't understand why maybe they got a silver and they thought they were going to get gold and they paid all this money and they had all the forms, but they didn't get it. And lawsuits developed because of that. Well, now what the AAA is trying to do, and, and the documents themselves, the AAA contracts, didn't support and figure out what path to go. Right. Well, now what they're doing is, is let's make a much more defined exhibit so the parties know the rules to the game in the beginning. So if it doesn't work out at the end, then they have a path legally to find out, did, did this happen? Did the owner do its responsibility? Did the contractor follow its responsibilities? And if they didn't do all those things, then you have an answer. There's a legal understanding yes. of how, how everybody goes. This actually reminds me, uh, I remember years ago, uh, uh, you were doing some lectures for me in one of my classes, and uh, one of the things you said at the time was, you know, the contracts are incredibly useful for lots of different things, but the main thing they're useful for is to give you a tool to have a conversation between the parties. Yes. Uh, so that it's really about getting everybody on board, and this would be a classic example of that, where instead of it just saying, oh yeah, we should really do something sustainable, you're like, okay, we're gonna do something sustainable, here's the checklist of all the different things that you have to do, here's the things I have to do. Exactly. And it sort of gets everybody to have that understanding all together. Yeah, that's very much so. And there's one other point that I think is also, the AA wants this, they recognize it's important, but one person's idea of sustainability is yeah, different than the sure. other. That's certainly so, true. So they actually do not define the word sustainable in the exhibit. It's a very flexible, amorphous thing so they can figure out, so the parties can't talk about it. And then you have and to, you can kind of self-define it for this project. Exactly. So you actually create a sustainable objective. You have a sustainable plan. It walks you through the process, but it doesn't deliver exact definitions. And that's good. But what happens is, is if, if the parties buy into a process, whatever sustainable means, whatever they want at the end of the game, if somebody deviates from the process and you don't get your end goal, now we have a path to figure out legally who's legal, responsible. Legal, legal responsibilities. I think this is a great example of one that could easily be a question, so uh, I think that's a good one to know. And then this one is kind of kind of similar in a certain way. This is going to be talking about digital data, uh, BIM protocols, so Revit uh, kinds of issues. Uh, essentially, what's up with the model, and how do you know what do we do with these models that uh, these three D digital models that Correct. can float around so easily. Uh, tell us a little bit about this change. Well, so like I said, the E203, this is all, as you see, it's all blue. So this is all new language. Um, the E203 has been referenced in previous versions. Um, you can see it's actually a 2013 document. If you see the definition, it was just underlined there. So it was, a, it was an exhibit that was rolled into the AIA suite of documents a while ago. And it would always be referenced at the back end of the B101. Say, here is attached, to, and this is how we're going to exchange documents. Now, once again, they're saying, we're going to determine what the protocols are. The parties are going to agree. The very first sentence in there, the parties shall agree upon the protocols governing the transmission of the instruments of service. That means we're going to once again define how we're going to translate documents back and forth. Once you figure that out, once you have determined what those protocols are, everybody has to be on board. And you look to the E203 to say, this is what the owner does, this is what the contractor right. does, this is the architect. So the owner can't just take the model and hand it to somebody else without them following and the owner and whoever they're handing it to following these protocols. And the GC can't just hand it to somebody else and suddenly it has a life of its own going to a bunch of other folks. It has to follow these protocols. Correct, and if you take a look, and, and if I can do here right now, this, this very point is, is relevant to, um, let me see if I can find that and get over here. See, the party, if they're usually relying at their sole risk without liability of the parties, see where I've, I've circled this here, is if you go ahead and start using the electronic data and you are not following the protocols, 
you are doing it at your sole risk. So like you right. said, if owner gives something to the contractor and the architect hasn't been rolled in and, he, and the owner's not following the rules of the game, yeah. architect's out, contractor and owner are the ones that are responsible. And it may be perfectly fine from the owner's standpoint. Like, yeah, we understand we're taking this risk. We just want these guys to do this one thing for us and that's fine. Correct. But they're they have to understand that they're taking their own uh, uh, contractual risk that it's not affecting the architect. So they can't turn around and say, hey architect, why'd you do this to me? if they did it to themselves. Yeah, and, and terms that you put in a language, you say sole risk and well, without liability to the other party, those are really strong, strong words. That's very strong, yeah, shall, sole risk, yeah. things like that. Those are always words you wanna be looking for right. on these do documents when you're reading them yourselves, which by the way, you should all be reading these documents yourselves. It's much, much easier to read it after you hear Mike talk about <laughs> it, but, um, but you should absolutely read and then look for those words because they have real impact as well as words that are looser, like endeavor or yes. something along those lines, because those really tell you the, the flavor of what, what the feeling is really like. Right. All right, we're gonna keep moving along. This is talking about insurance now. So here, and I haven't put any of the text of the actual document here because, first of all, and I do this every day, insurance is, is probably the most boring part of the agreement. <laughs> but I will say this, and, and this is not uh, in, in anything uh, in deference against the AAA. They have had insurance language in all their documents because it's important to have everybody insurance. If you're out there practicing architecture or a contractor, make sure you have your insurance. And I could tell you horror stories of my clients that didn't. But that's the first thing and the AA recognized that. We'll do that as another, another uh, yeah, podcast we can, later. We can have yeah. The, the, yeah, the, the lessons learned podcast. But, but the important thing here is what the AA recognized is that the, and especially in the A series, the, the language they tried to put in pretty good robust language but the insurance industry is so rapidly changing that they couldn't keep up with the language. So what they did now is they have a little bit more detail in saying for the insurance, we're gonna have, um, you, you need to get your professional liability and a, a few more comments that are general. So the, the architect has a guideline, the owner has a guideline, but not real great detail. When we get into A201, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about how they handled it for that because insurance can even be more important on the construction side of it. But at least what we've done here is, is we've beefed up the insurance provision so the parties, again, can have that discussion up front. Right. Uh, so we've got a couple questions in. One of them uh, that a number of people have asked is, uh, will the ARE test us on the 2007 or on the 2017 version? Um, the way that the questions get developed over time, uh, it takes a lot of time to test out different questions and build them up. So uh, I would expect there will be 2007 questions uh, for quite a while. However, there will start to be 2017 questions. Uh, and I'm sure there are already are some uh, on, in the NCARB uh, uh, body of questions. But you'll get both. You shouldn't get too many questions that are like, they're not going to try to trip you up between, you know, you didn't know that it was a 2017. Like the questions are gonna be sort of general to a certain degree. Do you just sort of understand the type of question, the type of issues that the contract is really covering? The thing you wanna be looking for is those kinds of issues that are easy to ask a question about and are meaningful to young architects. So something like the change in BIM, like Correct. do you have insurance? How do you express insurance? Uh, are we going to do a sustainable project, all those things. And then, of course, all of the instruments of service, standard of care, right. all of those kinds of terms uh, that we had. We had one other quick question here. Um, it, somebody was, uh, um, 
uh, I'm trying to read it here, Muna, Muna uh, was uh, wondering, is the change in uh, with the, the BIM model thing, is that similar to uh, the fact that uh, when there's like a, using the word indemnify in the future, like when a owner takes the drawings and goes and does work without the architect's knowledge, there are certain terms that are built in Correct. to the co contract. Is it sort of similar to the way that was done in 2007? Is that how the... the yeah, the, the fact that, that they have said that you are sole liability or sole responsibility without liability to the other parties, that means you're taking it on your own. Now, I, if we can go back real quick on that slide to see, because I want to make sure that yeah, whether great. they have actually indemnification language in there. So in this, in this version here, it says it's without liability to the other parties, but it doesn't say you need to indemnify. Indemnify means you are stepping in and you are protecting that other party. So it hasn't gone so far as when the owner takes the architect's drawings and uses it on a project with the architect's response overseeing it. So here it's just saying you're doing it at your sole responsibility and nobody else has liability, so you, but it doesn't say that the owner, it let's say the owner is taking that extra. Correct. So. Which is which is built into the regular part yes. of the contract. Yes, and and one of the reasons why is because anybody could deviate from BIM in the uh, quickly liability uh, indemnity has to be contractual. So that's why if the owner takes the drawings, there's the contractual indemnity. But if the contractor deviated from BIM, he doesn't have to provide indemnity due to the structure of the way the law is put together. And that's another okay. lecture for my students and not for you guys. <laughs> that's a longer, so. a longer one. All right, here we're on a, kind of an interesting one, which is the owner's acceptance of non-conforming work. And anybody that's ever spent time on a building site with an owner that wants to get a project finished, uh, and the architect is looking at it and saying, wait, this isn't what was supposed to be there. Yeah. Uh, that conversation could be a very uh, difficult uh, conversation for everybody involved. Yeah, and, and what they did change here is if you look, the, the original, they didn't strike anything from the other one. They just added one more part because before the architect's not responsible for the owner's giving instructions or substituting. But sometimes the architect would, they try to tag the architect if the owner accepts something. So the AAA recognized it's not just the owner directing traffic or substituting and talk to the contractor. It's them saying, I accept this work as is. If the architect didn't like it, but the owner accepts it, owner has clear free, it's a get out of jail free card for them. So, um, and it says made or given without the architect's written approval. And it's written there. So even if the architect says, okay, it has to be without the written approval. And that's an important thing. So the architect again has protections for that. Right. So. Uh, one one will back as far as back to your other question about how far, how long will these documents potentially or when to the ARE pulls it in. Yeah. The O sevens are still supported by the AIA till October of 2018 of this year. So they're software. So once you get past October, the AIA will not support that document. I'm not saying that the people that are writing the exams are in lockstep with that, but yeah. I would look that after this fall, I would anticipate the questions to be more focused on the 2017s because. The AA doesn't support it. Technically, they're the only documents out there. Exactly. Yeah, it just, knowing that it takes years to write <laughs> all the questions, true. there'll still be some 17 questions uh, out there for, for quite a while. Uh, I mean, some 07 questions out there for quite a while. But yeah, uh, you should have a pretty good idea. The overall contract is still essentially the same as the it 2007s. Is. So it's not like there's this massive difference. Uh, so you could read either of them and, and do pretty well uh, on an understanding of what's going on. It's just that you should really also know the 17s right, right. The, and the differences. And, and a note, if you want to find, we, we picked, the, or I, when I was putting this together, I kind of picked the high points. Um, there are other changes. 
if you, if you type in and you do a search of B101 2017 compared to 2007, the AIA actually has on their website yeah. a PDF you can download and has it, it looks just like this without the colors. It's got strike throughs and bolds so you can know what's new and not new. Yeah, so it's it, a very useful document. Yeah, it's that nice. One. All right, now we're moving on to uh, uh, one that always throws a lot of clients. Yes. Uh, it, it takes, this, is, this is really, again, about having the conversation with the different parties. This Correct. is like getting everybody on board, which is this idea of additional services and supplemental service. Right. So what they did here is it used to only be called additional services, and it was all lumped in. And um, Section 411, there used to be, there's a chart. It's got this laundry list of about 30 different types of services that are not in your basic services. And conceptually, the AIA said, we're going to have basic services and additional services. And what got confusing was, well, when's it, when do we negotiate this up front? What happens if it arises on the project? So what they did is they split it. They have supplemental services, and that's this first section, and that's 4.1. And then they have additional services, which are 4.2. In 4.1, these supplemental services are ones that I like to describe in this laundry list. There's that chart. Is have this discussion with your client up front. Right. In fact, I recommend, and I, when I teach my class, I tell my students, this is a marketing tool for you. Right. Look at all these types of services that you might want to give to your client they don't even know about. You know, there's So, uh, like uh, marketing drawings. Lead, uh, additional models. Right. Um, if you want to do landscape design. There's a whole host of things. Uh, specialty interior, uh, like specifying furniture right. and things like that. Uh, uh, presenting like, to boards. If you have to have additional times you have to meet and present to people that are outside. They're all listed in there. And interestingly enough, they also have things like geotech and civil and stuff that is more traditional. Um, and they have two columns. One column says architect, the other column says owner. And you check the column who's going to do it. So you have a project, you need to have some civil work done because you need the site graded and everything else. The owner and the architect have a discussion. Who's going to handle the design side of that? Who's responsible? Traditionally, you would think that the architect would have that under their umbrella. Yeah, I'll bring in a civil engineer because I speak the language, I can bring him in, we have the contracts. But sometimes the owner may bring somebody in. And, and so for it, civil, that happens all the time. Yeah, yeah. Not a huge number of times, but, but probably 20% of the time correct. or something. Where, because they have maybe other buildings around or they, they're, they're doing the civil work uh, two years before right. while they're, because they want to get the land ready, but they're not going to get into construction for another while. So like there's all sorts of reasons why those kinds of things might make more sense to fall into different Correct. You know, one category or the other. Yeah, and so now we have this and we call it supplemental because, and as I said, think about it as it's what you want to discuss and negotiate up front. Get a price point for it. Figure out how you're going to do it. How's it going to work into the schedule? All those things you want to have that communication with the owner. I, I will tell you this, I had one project. Geotech is one that's almost always handled by the owner. They get the guy to come in and do the soil borings and everything else. And in fact, in the A, the B101, it says the owner will do the supply. geotech. Yeah. But I had a client. It was a big project. It was about an $80 million project. And he wanted nothing to do with geotech. And so we had that discussion. And I said, you know, we got to go back to make sure the architect understands that because that's not in the agreement we signed. And so we went back and did a modification. And so sometimes you may have an owner thinking the architect's going to handle it. And if that right. discussion didn't happen, that's when you get to the end of the project saying what happened. So this is the supplemental is the upfront discussion. So there's the basic services, which are 
the owner is going to give you a bunch of information about surveys and, and uh, soils and stuff right. of the site, their program, uh, hopefully a check uh, to yes. start things off. Yes. Uh, there's going to be a bunch of sort of stuff that they're going to give you. Then the architect uh, does a sort of design intent, comes up with schematic designs, design, develops that design, eventually does the CD sets and is getting permits and things based, right. based on all of that. Um, but there may be other things that you want to build into that project Correct. that the owner really needs. Those are supplemental services. And then the additional services would be things that come up along the, along the way? Yes, they come up along the way. And, and one last point on basic services. There are four things in the contract that you can remember. It's your design, the creative side. It's structural, mechanical, and electrical. Those are the four things that every architect under this agreement is considered basic services. How you break those down in SDDD and so forth is further, but those are the four. Design, structural, mechanical, and electrical. Everything else, supplemental. But the additional services are, on a project, you're going to need to come out and walk the site. You're going to have to review RFIs. You're going to have to look at shop drawings. Right. Things may come up. They may come up. You can discuss those, and if we go, I think I have the next slide is talking about additional services. These are some more descriptions of supplemental. Additional services, they call it out, it's 2.4. And it says, except for those that are required under, and it refers back to a previous session, um, section, the additional services are all what comes up during that course of the project. And you want to negotiate, okay, I'm going to be on the project site. Um, it's actually, I, I realized I didn't have this slide. This is a little, I want to talk about this in a second. But in the additional services, I'm going to be on the project site once a month, once a week. I'm going to be doing reviews. I'm going to do only one turnaround of submittals or, change, or uh, uh, shop drawings or what have you. And as those come up in the course of the project, the AIA says refer to section 11, which is the payment section. And most of that's going to be done on an hourly wage. So it's not a chunk like we're going to do all lead, that's a supplemental, or all civil, that's a supplemental. It's you need me to go to the project site one more time than what we originally agreed, I will go on this hourly wage. And most additional services happen as we go along and occur on an hourly basis. And the sevens only talked about it, the 2007 documents only talked about it as additional services. They, all together. They had tenders. everything was, anything that wasn't basic services was additional service. Correct. And now we've just sort of separated those out. So if you see the word supplemental service, you know they're talking about the 17s. And you know that that's one of those things that was a discussion point early. Correct. Uh, when, there's, when you're putting together the contract. Right. And additional service is something that has come up over time, like a... a a code reviewer has uh, walked through the site and says you need more ventilation and so yes. you have to do a redesign or right. something like that. Right, and that's an additional service. Okay. So 424 here, let me, yeah. if I can have a pen here. What I, the reason why I wanted to put that slide on here is so in, in exhibit um, 423, or section 423, that's where you define, I'm going to do one review of shop drawings and submittals. I'm going to be on the project site twice a month or what have you. So it says that, that so if they do not exceed the limits, as set forth in section 4.2.3, I went too far there, Sorry this provision that. kicks in. And so what this thing says is, okay, let's say that you are um, supposed to visit the project site, but you need to do more, and the construction service you need to provide, if it's after, if it's 60 days after, if they, the owner comes back and says, hey, I want you to do something that is, even if it's considered a basic services, 60 days after substantial completion of the work, or after the initial substantial completion that's identified in the contract. Maybe, maybe what happens here is um, uh, the project got delayed. So if we thought the project was going to finish on, say, July 1st, got delayed and didn't finish till September 1st, you can still use that July 1st substantial completion date. 
If the owner comes back to you and says, I need you to do electrical work, that's in your basic services. But even though it's in the basic services, it's now moved past the Once statute of limitations. Once it's 60 days past the substantial yeah. completion date, then the architect by this provision is guaranteed to be able to bill it as an additional service. That's really and, interesting. And, and so, what? because what would happen is, the owner would have something come toward the end of the project. Oh, you got to fix this, you got to do that. And the architect would send a bill and the owner would say, but this is in your basic service. You should have done this up front. I'm not paying you. The architect says, but, but, but that was, something has changed. This is, you, you required me to do this later. I need to be paid for this. And it was a gap in the agreement. So now what the agreement says is, even if you're doing basic services, but it's 60 days after the substantial completion date, you can bill at the hourly weight. Yeah, which makes, I mean, often the 60 days is just sort of a useful cutoff point. Yeah. This often happens 100 days, 120 days. Right, uh, right. You know, f five months later, yeah. you'll find Well, they call you up and say, on. do that for me free. No, I'm right. not. You got to pay for it. Yeah. So don't want to do things free. Okay. Um, communications between parties. Uh, what's, uh, what's going on here? So this is, I think, a structural change that, that is rec recognizing the, this was, I think, a dramatic change, actually, in how the document works and recognizing the change in the industry. Traditionally, for decades, it would be owner talks to the architect, architect communicates the owner's wishes to the contractor. It's a straight line, and that's everything went through the architect. But what's happened is owners become more sophisticated, or they just want to get involved in the project more, whatever it is. Well, also, the technology's changed, people text to each other. Yes. Like, it's easier to be more fluid in your contact. Clearly. So now owners are talking to contractors left and right. And then at the end of the project, when something's gone south, the owner looks back to the architect and says, well, you should have caught that. Yeah, why, why didn't you know that this was happening? Yeah, and in fact, you could argue that the 07 and 97 versions actually obligated the contractor kind of to be in the know, even if they weren't part of that conversation. So what they've done here, as you can see in blue, it says the owner shall include the architect in all communications with the contractor. If the owner doesn't put the architect on that communication or doesn't loop them in on the text or follows up with that architect, then the architect's not responsible. And so it's an obligation, and there's similar language that, that falls into the AI, the A201, that the contractor has to keep everybody in the loop. This is recognizing owners are stepping out over their skis sometimes too much, and the architect shouldn't be carried along unless they're looped in on that. And it's just, it's worth noting here, kind of like we were talking about before, that, um, you know, the contracts are very useful when all hell breaks loose and litigation or arbitration is going to happen or something. It kind of gives everybody a place to go back and see what they should have done and all of that. But this is also really the, the, the useful thing here is that it's saying this is something you should understand. This is a conversation, like when we're signing this contract, what you're saying by signing this contract is if I have private conversations not through the normal chain of, uh, right. of command on the project, I'm taking a chance. Yes, exactly. And so it's an opportunity to have that discussion with the players the, that are uh, at the table on, yeah. on these contracts. Now, one, one thing that I want to show, and this is, the, this is why I love the AAA documents. As I said, when they revise them every 10 years, they have these, it takes about two years, speaking like the ARES, these committees meet for about two years. They, they meet every Wednesday. I'm on one of the lists, and I've gone to some of these meetings. And they have parties representing all owner, contractor, subcontractor. So this provision that we have underlined here, this was the architect saying, give this to me. I need you to protect me, owner, because you're not helping me out. The last sentence down here is the owner coming back in that same discussion saying, hey, wait a minute. What happens when your electrical engineer is talking to the contractor behind my back? Why is this not happening? And this is the owner saying, I need you to keep your subconsultants in check. 
So this language wasn't in there before. And what it's now saying is, architect, your people need to funnel through you. If I'm going to give you this, but I'm going to hold you responsible for your people. So it's a give and take, and it shows, this shows exactly that more than one voice is in this document, which is great. And that the mechanical engineer, when they want to talk to the GC, should be going through the architect. They, they, they must. Through the, thing. the subcontractors who want to talk to the architect should be going through the GC, yep. through the thing. The owner, when they're talking to the GC, should also be including the architect. And it, it's sort of acknowledging the fact that people don't always do that, but that you're taking risk when, when exactly. you go away from That's that. That's exactly right. All right, uh, cost of the work. Uh, let's talk about that. Yeah, this one's just real quick. It, it, they had the def definition of what the cost of the work was, um, but they had to kind of they wanted to make it more clear. And here, this was if if the owner brings in their own people. If the owner brings in a, something else, it's something otherwise furnished by the owner. It's their value. So that sometimes people would get confused of what equals the cost of the work. And again, this is a defined term. If, it, if you see, see the word work or capitalized. Anytime yeah. you see a capitalized term in any contract, that means it's a defined term. And so this is 6.1 actually defines what the cost of the work is. And this definition is, is uh, mirrored actually in the A201. So it's consistency throughout. But this new language is helping clarify what that definition is just because there have been litigation over in the past. Yeah, and I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on this one right now, but I do recommend that you actually spend some time really understanding this on your own because it is fascinating what is not included. Uh, compensation for the architect is not included. The uh, cost of the land is not included. Uh, uh, contingencies are not included. So there's a whole series of kind of interesting aspects. Right. Uh, FF&E is often not included. Uh, uh, there's a whole series of different things that don't go into the cost of the work because it's a very particular contractual part of what's going on. When yeah. they say work, they mean the one part of it. They don't mean the whole thing. They don't mean all the land and all the lawyer's fees right, and all right. that stuff. And, and one last point, the reason why Defining the cost of the work is important is because the contractor's profit margin is often a percentage of the cost of the work or sometimes the architect's design fee will be a percentage of the cost of the work. So you want to figure out what that percentage is tagged off of because somebody can make more or less if you don't have the definition right. Yeah, that's a, a key, key one. Uh, let's talk about liability um, for estimates because built into the B101 is the idea that the architect should have a pretty good idea of what's what the costs of things are and that they're making a commitment essentially Correct. that the things will come in reasonably close to the original budget. Yeah, the average owner is looking to the architect to say, hey, I can tell you how much it's going to cost you this project. And so they have to do a cost, they have to do an estimate at the end of schematic design and construction documents. Here, this is recognizing in the past it said if you if you bust, if you have a budget bust, the architect had to redesign for free, essentially. But the architects pushed back here and said, but you know, there may be market forces that change. You know, if we look at even what, we could talk about what's going on in public right now. What's gonna happen to the price of steel? Right. And the architect has given a budget. You guys, you're, you have actually given your client a budget. It's gone out to bid, and we don't know what's gonna happen to the price of steel. And when that project comes in 15, 20% overwards, why is the architect responsible for it? Shouldn't be. That's what this new language says, is, is that the architect doesn't necessarily have to be responsible because of market conditions or things it can't see in the future. But if you come in double the original estimate uh, and it's not about the steel or something, well, then, then you the are architect responsible. Has to, exactly. You have to redesign. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So that's an interesting one. 
Okay, so that's the sort of general discussion of the changes from the uh, 2007 to 2017 on the B101. Now let's take a look at the general conditions, the A201. Uh, the A201, as we said, is that kind of umbrella document that has all the definitions and is kind of the, the backbone to how all these different contracts relate to each other. So let's just sort of dive right in. And we got notice requirements. Yeah, this is a real quick one that we can do. Previously, again, notice is a, is a term that was um, not necessarily capitalized throughout. In fact, the old document, sometimes it's capitalized, sometimes it's not. So what they did is, is let's get rid of all that. Basically, they say notice must be in writing. And so everything is in writing. And so it says notice shall be in writing to the designated representative. They're giving instructions. So going forward, anytime you see the word notice in the document, it needs to be in writing. That's, and it's a consistent term. So that's what they're trying to do there. Okay. Um, that's the, one, the other one change here on 1.6.2 is that yes, it needs to be in writing, but if it's a claim, you have to do it by certified or registered mail. Here, I'll show you where that is down here. So if you are claimed, that means if someone's asking for money, not only does it need to be in writing, but it needs to be certified or registered mail. So the contractor has to put it in the post. It can't just say, I sent you an email, or it's in the project meeting minutes. So if you want an actual claim, you gotta go one more step. Other than that, everything else needs to be in writing. All right, you can imagine that as a question, can't you? All right, uh, this is sort of getting back, this is, we were talking in the B101 about the, the digital and BIM Revit world, yep. and not surprisingly, it gets uh, referenced again in the A201. Correct, and the beauty of the AA documents is this consistency of language and terminology, so everybody's on the same page. And you'll see down here, you have that same thing, relying on parties' sole risk and without liability to the other party. If you deviate from the protocols, um, then you're going to be, have to take it on your own self. So this is, this is almost exactly word for word for the language you sound in the BO101, let's keep it all consistent. So that's one of the reasons why I put this in to show the consistency between the documents. And that's partly because the uh, GC, the contractor, isn't necessarily reading the B101, right? It is they, not. Like they, the B101 is between the owner and the architect, right. but there are implications when you sign any of these documents and it shows up here in the A201 that have the GC has role to play in that understanding and in how BIM is used, how the sustainability project works, all of that. The, the interesting thing is, and you're exactly right, the, the contractor doesn't get the B101. They, they know the model, but they don't know what the revisions are or anything else. In the B101, it requires the owner to give any revised or revisions of the owner contract agreement to the architect. So, right. the, architect, so the architect should see the A101 and they do as, get it. It, as it comes yeah. through. Yep. Yeah. So. All right, uh, another A201, uh, evidence of financial arrangement. I always found this one kind of fascinating because uh, it feels so, it's, it feels sort of awkward yes. to have this in here and yet it's so important. Well, if you think about it, I mean, if, you, if the owner's gonna go to a bank and get a loan, the, the bank's gonna say, well, what's, why do I wanna give you this loan? And if the contractor is gonna build this and he wants to get paid, I need to make sure that you have yeah, financial I'm, stability. I'm about to get into a many, many months long yeah. process where I'm gonna be putting a lot of money and prestige out as a contractor. And like, you gotta be able to actually do the project and pay for the project. And yeah. there are plenty of developers and owners um, that are optimistic that they'll be able to, but don't actually have it all lined up beforehand. And this is really sort of helping you out in those moments. Right. Now the tweak that they made is if you can take a look at here, this was because of, of talking about, this is where language in the contract caused litigation. It said here before, may request in writing. So a contractor later on would say, 
well, you should have given it to me because it didn't say I had to request in writing. Now it says, and upon written request. So the, con the owner doesn't have to do anything until they get written request, whereas here it said the contractor may request. So they cleared up how the provision is reviewed based on litigation where they saw that it wasn't as clear as they thought. So that, that's just one little tidbit of the AIA recognizing Maybe we didn't get it right the first time. Let's fix it. Let's, let's fix it. Yeah. And it also is another example of, of how the A201 is speaking to all the players. Exactly. Right? It's speaking to the architect, speaking to the owner, and speaking to the GC, as well as the consultants who are part of the uh, architect's world, right, right, the right. subs who are part of the GC's world, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Okay, uh, A201, the contractor's scheduling requirements. One of the things that uh, everybody should really realize is that the means and methods is sort of the contractor's world. That includes scheduling. Yep. It's sort of the, uh, you know, where are the concrete trucks going to come in and sit uh, before they pour the concrete? Like, all of that is part of the, the contractor's world. Uh, the design intent is the architect's world. Yep. And this is sort of talking about, like, all right, the contractor's got this scheduling thing they have to do. Yeah, and the language in blue was the AAA beefing up what is in the schedule so everybody's on the same page. And the reason why they did that is because as, as we've moved to much more fast track projects and these huge projects where time is really the most expensive thing is a delay, they said, let's, let's actually tell them what should go in the schedule. This is language that when I would get this document, I would add this always. I'm glad it's now in. I add a little bit more, but, but at least they're recognizing, you can't just say, oh, I'll get you scheduled. Don't worry about it. It's mine. At least we have to have some specifics in there. So there's like the initial dates, but then also interim schedule milestones, for example, is an interesting one. So yeah. it's not just start and finish. It's there's when's foundations going in, when's key. the steel going up, you know, right. when are you going to be dry in? There's lots of things that happen. And nobody expects uh, a schedule to actually be the final schedule. Like schedules change because weather and th you know right. permits and whatever. Like there's all kinds of things happen, but you need to have something to be the sort of backbone of the project so everybody can make decisions. Yeah, what I tell my clients, whether it's owner, contractor, architect, schedule's a living, breathing animal until the date has passed. And once you're anything in the past, it's frozen. So you know anything that happened up till today, March 6th, um, anything going forward, that schedule may change. But what happened before, and if they didn't meet those dates, they've blown the schedule. And that's how you interpret it legally, is if something got, if it came and went, and you pass the schedule, you can't revise it backwards, but you can manipulate it going forward. All right. so. Okay, another A201, uh, communication between parties. And this is a really, I, we've talked about this a little bit already. This is really one of those, like I find this very difficult. Uh, the example I always give is uh, when I had a, a client and myself and a contractor on a thread from uh, on text and they were clients asked like seven questions yeah and the contractor who was probably driving from one project to another says yes right and then you know I'm looking at this thinking wait a minute yeah. this is terrible like yep. like what is going on and so I'm asking all these other specific questions but everybody's like annoyed that I'm right. writing these extensive texts and you know uh, this whole communication thing seems to be really kind of a tricky part of the moment in time right now yeah and I think that's important and, and if you take a look at the language down here now it isn't mandated but it says the contract documents may specify other communication protocols it talks about how you want to communicate back and forth it uses the same language that we found in the B101. The owner shall promptly notify the architect of the substance or directed communications of any direct communications between the owner and the contractor. So it's consistency in language. 
But it also, as I said down here, talking about communication protocols. These are important that you establish those up front. And it could be anything. It could be, you yeah. could establish whatever you want, whatever works for all the parties, but yes. you establish something. Correct. Who's CC'd on what, so forth. Uh, indemnification of liens. Uh, maybe could you could just take a quick second and just talk about liens and sure. So mechanics lien is something that um, if if a subcontractor doesn't get paid, or your subconsultant like a civil engineer doesn't get paid, they don't have a contract with the owner, the person with the money. So legally, without a contract, they can't file suit. But they got stiffed. Now they can always sue the contractor, but the contractor may say, owner's not paying me. So the courts, going back in, in the legislature in Illinois, the, the Illinois Mechanics Lien Acts from 1905, it was put in place to say, owner has been improved. The property has been improved by your work, subcontractor. The electrician has put in electrical wiring. So you could put a lien on the property itself and you can foreclose on that lien. Now what's happened here... So let's say you're owed yes. $100,000 correct? Uh, as an electrician, you could say, all right, I'm, I'm essentially claiming $100,000 worth of ownership of this property. Exactly, exactly. And, and a bunch of people jump in and they have to foreclose and sell the property and they divvy the profits. He can always sue the contractor, but it's this extra right. And it's actually, in fact, a mechanics lien jumps over a mortgage. It's a super right. It's, it's a very powerful tool. But frankly, the subcontractors and the subconsultants were getting, you know, not paid. So it was important for them to have a right. What this provision here, as you can see, it's blue, so it's all new, says if owner has paid the contractor and the, the subcontractor, the general contractor, and the subcontractor files a lien. So owner says, gets its schedule of values and its pay app, and it says $100,000 for electrical. And in that check, the big full check, it includes the $100,000 for electrical. And then there's a lien filed. The contractor must indemnify the owner, meaning step into the shoes and pick up the defense, because the owner's already paid the contractor, the general contractor. And so the owner is insulated from liability from that subcontractor's claim. So it's a third party, the subcontractor, suing the owner. And this provision says the contractor, because you've already been paid, needs to defend the owner against the third party's claim. So the, the big thing about that would be whether you can show that you've been paid exactly. or not been yeah. paid. So this is a good one. This is the owner's ask for this. This was never in the provision before. The owners wanted this agreement in, this, this clause in. Yeah, it's a good one to spend a few, few minutes going back and forth on, on liens and indemnification. That's a, that's a good topic to understand. Uh, insurance and bonds, maybe we can do this one sort of quickly. Yeah, real quick. What they did with the insurance provision, as I said, the old AIA had three pages of insurance language. And, and again, it's not their fault. They just couldn't keep up with what's going on in the insurance industry. So they have a couple things say you got to provide insurance and you got to have a bond, potentially, if it's a government job or if the owner wants a bond. And bonds are essentially insurance for whether the project's going to be yeah. finished out or yeah. something like that. It's Correct. a different version of insurance. It's a different security for the owner. Right. That's the way I look at it. It's a different type of security. But what the AI did is they created an Exhibit A. So now they have a separate exhibit that has this laundry list that can create a dialogue between the owner and the contractor of different types of insurance. So instead of the AIA being in the insurance game and writing insurance language, they said, here are the types of insurance. Now you guys go out to your insurance brokers and figure out what's going to be in right. there. And, Much and better approach. Check at the boxes of the ones that check are Check the box. It's exactly what it is. Appropriate here. All right. Uh, a little bit more about insurance. This is a notice, to can uh, notice of cancellation. Yeah, and it's just to make sure that sometimes a contractor may get canceled because they didn't pay their premiums. And here the owner says, if you get canceled, you got to tell us about that. And you got to give the owner the chance to step in and pay the contractors the premiums. One thing that people don't understand, when a contractor bids a job, they're already building in price for the insurance. So the owner's already paying for the insurance. 
The owner wants the project insured to the very end. Right. If the contractors lost their insurance, the owner can step in and pay for it. Because there could be big problems. Yeah. If, the, if something goes wrong, then the owner could be stuck without any insurance coverage for that contractor, which could drag things out for months and years and all right. kinds of Right, so problems. this gives a vehicle for that to happen and requires the contractor to tell the owner, I've been canceled. Interesting. Uh, again, the A201, here's a claim for profit on work not performed. Yeah, so this is if we're gonna be termination, if the owner breached, so this is the contractor saying, I'm gonna terminate. And it says, um, it's for work not executed. Here you're getting profit for work not executed. A lot of owners are gonna strike this because why should they pay for profit? But the contractor saying, hey, owner, you're the one that screwed up here. I'm gonna take and, and terminate this agreement because you're not paying me. I've already committed to a bunch of work. I got material sitting on the site. I, have to, I, I don't have my I've, next job I've, lined I up. didn't take another job. I, my subs didn't take their other jobs. Right. I have all these other sort of So I have a million dollar project and then suddenly it stops. The expectation is that I should still be able to get some of yeah. this. I was gonna get a 10% profit on this job. I was a million dollars, so I was gonna take home 100,000. Um, you're not paying me, we're only 300,000 into this job, I still should get my full profit, and that's what this is saying. Owners are gonna push back, but the AIA recognizes that the contractors have a viable argument here. Yeah, I've, I've seen this one crossed off already. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's only been out for a little while. Yeah. So. Um, and then this is termination, that one was a termination by the contractor of the owner. This is the termination by the owner for convenience. So this is, says, you know, it's just not working out. We just don't like what happens, and again, what the AIA is recognizing here is, sure, the owner shouldn't be stuck with a bad marriage. If it's not going to work with this contractor, they can get out and get somebody else. That's fine. The, the point of, of the contracts is not to put shackles onto people. That, Correct. You know, like the idea here is that you, this, is a, this is a relationship that's going to yes. be ongoing and have, you know, long, and if it's not working, it's you not can, working. You can walk away. But if you walk away, what we're going to say is, is you need to have certain types of things that you need to pay the contractor for that. And previously, they said along with reasonable ownerhead, overhead and profit of work not executed, but here they have defined now, it includes costs attributable to the termination of subcontracts, so defining what those costs are. You may have a buyout clause of a subcontractor, the termination fee, which was something that would be negotiated up front, and then anything else set forth in the agreement. Right. So there are some costs that the contractor says, I should get this. If you want to walk away, fine. But don't leave me holding the bag here for some of the stuff downstream. So the owner can uh, terminate for convenience Really, nobody else can terminate for convenience. Only the owner can terminate for convenience, but it's at it's a, it's a cost. Right, yeah. it, it has, has costs to it. So. Okay, we're gonna do a quick discussion of the A101. Um, so uh, here we're talking about uh, the... Um, All I did here was talk about the insurance exhibit. This so is just so much more. And the A101, just a reminder, is the owner-contractor agreement. Correct, and so the actually the A101 as a document um, they changed a lot of the definitional terms that we've already talked about thus far. They had a little bit more description of how a pay application and invoicing process is gonna be. But what we've covered in the B101 and the A201 are by and large what were the structural changes of the main agreement. This is talking about this, um, the exhibit, this insurance exhibit I reference is actually an exhibit to the A101. And so, what it, what it has, what that insurance exhibit has is here is, is it distinguishes um, between the required and optional insurance. So every contractor must have commercial general liability and auto and workers comp. And then here's this laundry list, as I say, this check the box or grocery list of the type of insurance that also could be carried. 
If you're working near the water, you need the Jones Act. If you're going to have something dealing, like I did a project that was over railways, you need railway insurance. And so it has a discussion for that. Um, so the, the, the basic thing is, is there's a set of very specific things that everybody's going to have to have. That's you, required. You have to have some requirements. Yes. And then for all the myriad other possibilities, there are specific other elements, and that's when you're, you're checking those other boxes. Right, yeah, and it works as this module. We, right. we attach this modular exhibit. It's much more flexible for the parties, but it also gets them on the same page because people it's might again not having think that conversation, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how many times I've had a discussion with a client where everybody's moving along, and I, and I look at it, I'm like, has anybody gone to your broker? Because the you know, owners often say, well, we'll take care of it with a carrier. And I'll have to come back and say, have you gone to your broker? Because you know you're building next to a railroad track. Do you have railroad liability? Oh, I didn't know I needed that. Yeah. Well, now it's in the document so they can actually see it. I have to say, I would not have known I would needed that. That's, well, a, that's a, a great example. Yeah. So there's things about that. And then here, um, the section A2, if you get in this exhibit, talks about the owner's insurance requirements. Because sure, the owner needs to carry insurance, property insurance. Pro yeah. and, and these are Builders talked risk. about. Mm -hmm. And different examples. And so that's what the owner's going to carry. That's section A2 of the exhibit. Um, A1 is the contractor and A2 is the owner. Yeah, and it, remember it's, a, it's an agreement between the, the, the two and there's going to be requirements for the owner, there's going to yes. be requirements for the contractor, yeah. Yeah. and then through their kind of referencing in the A201, they'll have requirements for the architect as well, even though it's this relationship between the owner and the Correct. contract. Correct. And then as I, I said A1, but it's A3 is the contractor's insurance requirement. So there's your, your number one is your required. Commercial general liability, auto, workers' comp, employers' liability, and then there's their optional, Jones Act. Sometimes a contractor actually may bring on a, a designer. If you're doing curtain walls, that's yeah. a specialty field. The contractor or their curtain wall contractor carries their professional liability and things like that. Okay. Uh, well, let us know if you have any, any more questions while we're sort of wrapping up here, but let's just take a moment and just talk generally uh, about kind of you know what you th where you think we're at with the, the, the contracts like what's uh, what's going to be happening next uh, uh, how do you s do you think these are going to hold true um, like are there are any of these things you're worried about anything like that you know I think we're, what's going to happen we've had some discussions about these I think a lot of these changes um, while there's some structural changes about communications and everything else the clarity is it's much more clear on certain things where I see the biggest question is what's going to happen with the sustainability and what's going to happen with the BIM the AIA has done, I thought, a really good job at trying to define in these exhibits what the process is. But it's going to take a while because you're still going to have that owner that doesn't quite understand, or maybe the architect doesn't understand because they haven't taken the time, they haven't gone through it. So I think what's going to happen, at least what I'm going to see, is an uptick. You're going to have your standard construction litigation. Things go else. wrong. Yeah. But I think you're going to have an uptick in, in lawsuits or actions or disputes, let's put it that way, maybe not lawsuits, but disputes, over the sustainability and, and this electronic digital data protocol. Um, is it going to be a great increase? Probably not. But when it happens, there's going to be, I think it's going to be a much, much meatier discussion between lawyers of how that's going to be resolved. Well, and part of the problem with, with for example, the sustainability is that there's all sorts of other people involved. Yes. Like if you're saying, yeah, we're going to get lead, you know, gold or lead platinum or something, uh, you know, it's not that, you know, me as the architect don't get to choose that. No, like the lead we, council is lead the council yep. does, and so there's a, there's a lot of back and forth, and there's all these other people involved, and it just seems like wow, it's really hard, uh, you know, 
two years before that moment happens Very to be able so. to say in a contract, no, we're guaranteeing this. Yeah, and, and I think one of the reasons also why it's going to be a, a potentially an uptick is businesses actually are recognizing, especially as the younger generation's coming up and they're more concerned about this, that they can actually hire better candidates because their building is green. Right. When you interview, it's what we talk about it in our firm. When we're interviewing top-notch potential law students coming in to be lawyers in our firm, if we have something that we can show that we're, we're appreciative of sustainability, it's just that one more piece of the puzzle that they say, I like you better than the next yeah. guy. Well, so it means you're current. It, it means yeah. you're, you, you kind of know, know what's going on. So uh, one just other quick last uh, question here that I, I, is there a way that you would describe, like how would you describe in a couple of words or a couple of sentences what the nature of the architect, the B101 is versus the nature of the A101? Like, because they're really different. They, they both sound sure. like contracts, right? right? They both read like contracts, which, no offense, uh, sounds sort of loyally and boring. Yes. boring. yes. Um, but they're really different. Yes. And like, how would you describe what that difference is between those? The B101 and the A101, not yeah. the A201. Yeah, let's just start okay. with those two. So the B101 has basically all the things that you're, it's gonna have the division of obligations, duties, and responsibilities between owner and architect, as well as how the architect's gonna get paid. So it's an all-in-one lump sum. It's gonna have the business terms of payment, and it's gonna have the structural or substantive terms of who's doing what. That's how the B101 is looked at in all-encompass. The, the A101, it's just the business terms up front. When's it gonna be done? How are we gonna get paid? What's the value of the project? And then they couple that with that catch-all document we've been talking about, the A201, which is the general conditions, which can be used kind of throughout the whole project. That's the monopoly rules of how to build. And that's why it's the A201. Correct. Is because it's tying in with the A101. Correct. And it's really sort of part of that, and it, we then also use it for the B101. Yes. Because it kind of, it's the same ground rules for the same project. Yeah, the A101 is your business terms. The A201 says, how do we build it? Right. And of course, the architect needs to know about the A201 because they want to know how it's going to be built. Yeah. And one of the other things that I think is worth sort of mentioning about like the A201, uh, or excuse me, the, the B101, the architect owner agreement, uh, you know, in many ways, it's a, it's a, you know, it's dry and contractual and all of that. But what it's talking about is something that's going to be happening in the future. Definitely. And so it has a sort of fluidity to it because it's hard to know exactly what's going to happen in the future. Correct. So you'll see words like endeavor and, you know, as best as you can yep. kind of terminology uh, because it wouldn't make sense to be able to say this is absolutely going to happen right. because there's so many things that could happen between now and then. Right. But then the A101, by that point, you've already got a whole set of drawings and a spec and all of the yes. all those conversations so when that comes through it's not anywhere near as sort of loose agreed like it has like okay you're gonna do this and you're gonna do it by this time yes yes it's much more defined and and, and you know you raise an interesting question a point that, that always befuddled me we talked about we don't really know necessarily for sure why they started on the sevens for revising these documents it always seemed to me illogical that the first contract that you execute is going to be the owner architect because you got to get the designs before you build it. So why does that start with a B? It drives me crazy. And the A's is the second part. Why is that? I don't know, but it, but so to the listening audience. Plus A stands for architect. Exactly. It doesn't. To the oh, listening audience, yeah. B is first and A is second, but, but he's right. The, the, the A series are going to be much more 
defined in stone, not everything, there's some fluidity in that document as well, but because they already know what's coming down the pike, they know what the drawings are, they know what the project's going to be. Yeah. So. All right, well, believe it or not, we're already over time. Uh, it's a lot packed in. We, we got through a lot. Hopefully that was uh, useful for everybody. I really want to say thank you to Mike Hanahan from Schiff Harden. Uh, your lectures are great. And by the way, you can actually track down your lectures online, I believe. I think we even have it written right here. Yeah, if you, if you um, I, as I said a couple times, I teach a class. I actually teach construction law um, at UIC here in Chicago to the Graduate School of Architecture. And all of my lectures that I give, um, that whether it's an hour or two hours or what have you, are found, you can find them, you go to my website, go to the firm's website, www.shiftharden.com, type in my name under the professionals, you'll find my bio page, and at the bottom, you're gonna see all of my lectures, there's a PowerPoint presentation of what we're talking about that day, and then the actual discussion. So uh, we covered, what we covered today in an hour, they take about six hours of lectures to do that over four different lecture periods, or I'm sorry, 12 over four different lectures to do the B101 and the A201. So it's a lot of hours. It's a lot of time, <laughs> um, but a lot of people like to read it, uh, to listen to it when they're studying for the ARES and everything else, but that's all free. Just go to the website and you can take a, take a yeah, listen. It's great stuff. Uh, and then obviously we have uh, lots and lots of information on the uh, Black Spectacles um, uh, service as well. All right, so once again, thank you to Mike. I uh, hope, uh, hope that was enjoyable to everybody. Thank you for uh, having me. Turned, uh, turned what can sometimes be considered a very dry experience into a lively conversation, at least I felt it was. Uh, all right, our, uh, our next session, uh, if you'd like to attend the next ARE live broadcast, uh, where we'll have a discussion about the uh, steps to getting uh, licensed, uh, how to get licensed, you can visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast. Uh, to register. Uh, I believe it's just been posted. Uh, there's a link in the chat box. Uh, so you can uh, go, to, uh, go to that and figure out how to get there and sign up and all kinds of interesting fun times will happen at that one. Uh, to learn more about uh, the ARE exam prep curriculum at Black Spectacles, go to blackspectacles.com where you can try out uh, any of the free course videos. And if you want your boss to pay for your membership, uh, be sure to visit blackspectacles.com slash firms to learn about the firm memberships like we talked about at the beginning. Uh, for those of you who are ready to start preparing for the ARE right now, uh, use coupon code CONTRACT3618PC to get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your ARE prep membership. And finally, uh, tomorrow we'll send you an email to follow up about uh, today's live broadcast. So please let us know uh, what you think and if you have any suggestions. Uh, we promise that we read every word that you write and that we will use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks again and thanks again to Mike. Thank you. Thank you.